0: This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have come to see his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, He was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are you not least among the rulers of Judah? For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod You may be seated. Well, how many of you this evening have ever played with a dog or a cat? Good, that's what I thought would be the case, most of you. They're sweet, aren't they? But I find sometimes dogs and cats may not be so sweet. How can you tell when a dog or a cat's not being sweet? What have you guys... When the fur's up, what else, what do you guys think? If you're kids, what do you think? How can you tell that a cat or a dog is not happy with you? They, they bark, they growl. And then what happens? They, you know, they curl their lip up like this. And what's going to happen next is they, they might try and bark at you. They may try and bite you. Or a cat may try and swat at you. Something like that. And then they're not so sweet. That's actually pretty scary. But that's what happens when an animal gets defensive. It tries to make itself look really big, bigger than it actually is. And it lashes out at anything that it thinks is a threat. And even if you're actually bigger than that cat or that dog, which you are, it's still going to try and go after you because it wants to get rid of you, which it sees as a threat. Today, we're going to be looking a bit at King Herod a man who's on the defensive. And we're going to contrast him with the Magi, who we find to be humbly seeking after the truth. It was about 140 years before Jesus was born that there was a man named John Hyrcanus. He was a Jewish national leader, a high priest, someone who was part of the ruling family called the Maccabees, or the Hasmonians, And he governed over all the people of Judea. He had conquered the people of the south, who we call Edomians. Those people of the south were then forced to either convert to Judaism or to leave the land of Edomia. And if you have read back in the book of Genesis, you might remember two brothers, Jacob and Esau. It was from Jacob that came the people of Israel, but it was from Esau that came the people of Edom. They were brothers that never actually got along throughout Israel's history, those Edomites would later become the Edomians. And so their forced conversion meant that these people now had to be circumcised, they had to follow Jewish custom, and they intermarried with the Jewish people. So then, from 140 years before Jesus, fast forward about 70 years. So we're at about 70 years before Jesus was born. Out of these converted Edomians came a man that would come to be known as Herod the Great. Herod paid a large sum of money to a Roman ruler named Mark Antony, And Mark Antony was in charge of the eastern provinces of the Roman Empire. And it was that big sum of money that would ensure that Herod would get to become the king over Judea. In fact, Herod's dynasty, the Herodians, would be the ones to replace the Hasmoneans until about 92 CE at the death Of Agrippa II. And his architectural feats are well remembered. He was a master builder. Two of the projects that he did were he expanded the second temple, and then he had devised an incredible system of waterways to bring water to Jerusalem. He even rebuilt the temple, and he rebuilt the walls around Samaria. So he was actually in favor with the Samaritans He was a man that loved to maintain his authority over everybody at all costs. He was happy to break Jewish law, even though he was also happy to build their temple or expand it. He wanted the Jews to be pleased. So one of the things that he did was he took foreign Jewish priests and he brought them to the temple to be the ruling priest there so that even the Jews outside of Palestine would find favor with him. And he wanted the Romans to be pleased. So he's actually also credited with rebuilding Apollo's temple and revitalizing the Olympic Games. He wanted to be well-liked, and he wanted to dwell in security. And to dwell in security, Herod had to make sure to eliminate any competition. He was a man that promoted his friends and a man that murdered his enemies. So being constantly plagued with fear and with paranoia He saw everybody around him as a threat, and he wanted to take down his opposition. And what he did is he actually made up accusations against his own sons and had them systematically executed along with any of his fellow uh, family members or officers that he suspected of treason. There was one writer who quoted Caesar Augustus who said of Herod, it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. As as somebody who's sort of following Jewish custom, he's not going to touch a pig. But if you're his son, you have to watch out for your life because you're in trouble. He's happy to murder members of his own household. He was a man that was driven not by faith, but a man that was driven by fear. He was a man that was concerned about his appearances, demanding loyalty, and cutting off anything that felt like a threat. One early Jewish historian that's named Josephus talks about Herod's treatment of his family and he says about his deeds that they're the action of a murderous mind and such as was not easily moved from that which is evil. So it was during the reign of that evil and murderous king, King Herod, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Herod's arrogance and fear kept him from seeing how all of who he was And how all that he could do could have actually brought glory to the king of Israel, who had sent his divine son to be Christ the king. And then into the story walk the Magi. Today's the Feast of Epiphany, and so we're looking at the Magi, and we're celebrating Jesus' glory being made known to the Gentiles. But I think understanding Herod helps us appreciate the beauty of the star's appearance to the Magi even more. It was a year or two into Jesus' life when the Magi appeared. And his parents were still in Bethlehem when, beyond the borders of Israel, there were some men out there in the east who saw a star rising up in the sky. We don't know where they were from exactly, but somewhere in the east. These were Magi, people who were part of a special class of individuals that dealt in astronomy, astrology, and alchemy. They weren't Jews. But somehow the gospel indicates that these people were familiar with the prophecy in numbers 24:17 regarding a star that would come out of Judah. They were skilled craftsmen, they were people of high status, but they were pagan nonetheless. They were astrologers who sought to manipulate the order of nature through esoteric knowledge. And it was these men who would offer their gifts to the king of kings. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, things which are elements that are created, things that are mined from the earth, things that are harvested. They're often used for purposes less than befitting of the worship of the true creator. But here, they're laid before the feet of the one who created all things. The magi have a simple faith. They didn't gather a crowd of experts to discuss where the star came or delve deeper into study, they observed, and then they responded. Even though they were complex, educated men, they still had a simple, obedient faith. But then we see Herod. Herod hears the news about a potential son of David, who's being honored by foreign dignitaries. And maybe his mind started thinking about Solomon, and that episode with the queen of Sheba bringing him Uh, gifts. Or the prophet that we heard earlier speaking in Isaiah 60, verse 6, all those from Sheba shall come, they shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news. That's not the kind of news that goes very well when a paranoid tyrant is bent on keeping his rule at all costs. So knowing what we know about Herod, when we read in verse 3 that he's distressed, it's no wonder then Why the writer also says, and all Jerusalem was distressed with him, because fear always results when irrational rulers feel threatened. Herod gathers together the chief priests, and he gathers together the scribes, the religious leaders, and he asks them about the star. They had all the books, but it's the magi who had the sight. Herod and all the religious leaders, despite having a voluminous amount of knowledge, were fixated on overthrowing God's plan with their own agenda. So Herod then serves as a great illustration to us of what happens with a mind that's clouded over with delusions of self grandeur God gives us all areas of responsibility that we have to steward, and we could easily be like the Magi, offering who we are and what we produce to Jesus our King, or we could become like Herod, seeking what makes us look best at all times with all people in order to advance our own agendas. When we're fixated on looking our best with all people, we can struggle to give credit where credit is due. One of the greatest gifts that happened to me in in my career as an academic is that one scholar gave me credit for research in front of a group of scholars that I really looked up to. And he didn't have to do that, I was just his research assistant, but that was a huge gift. And many of you have people working under you as well. Do we take time to publicly honor them, or does that feel threatening to us? And by contrast, if our employee makes a mistake, do we take the extra time to correct patterns in private rather than shaming them in public? We shouldn't worry about our reputation so much that when something goes wrong, we blame it on the person who works under us. Are we willing to bear the shame of a failure for the good of our team? I know that there's complex situations behind all work things, but in general, does our disposition show people who are around us that Jesus is our king and that we're not just doing our job to make ourselves look greater than we actually are, to be on the defensive? To humbly lead shows Jesus is king as we lay down who we are and what we make at his feet. One of the other encouraging parts about the story of the Magi is that God can take these people who know nothing about him and he who is the light of the world can shine light on their darkness. There is one, there's no one who's beyond the reach of the grace of God. If they would open their hearts and with humility, he would just search diligently. And if I'm honest, I don't always fully understand that, but I do trust that it's true knowing that Jesus is the king and not me. I was thinking back to before Christmas Eve and Caitlin and I had knocked on about 28 doors in our apartment complex to invite people to Christmas Eve and only about 10 of those actually answered their door and not everybody spoke English. So out of the ones who spoke English, only about three sounded somewhat interested and at the end of the day, I'm not actually sure that anybody came and it's tempting to despair in that but then I think of these wise men and I'm encouraged again, because we all have idols. Everybody has idols. We have idols that are proverbial gold and frankincense and myrrh, things that we shape and that we craft, things that we offer, that comes from our wealth, to, to false systems and to false gods. All of humanity is with us in this. But the good news is that Jesus is the one who reclaims created things for his glory. He reminds us that we are loved and that who we are is fundamentally good and beautiful and that the things that we can produce with our hands can be beautiful and pleasing. And that's the hope of the Magi. And we're at our best, our most whole, when we're in a habit of offering Jesus who we are and what we have in worship. So there's an irony in this story. The irony is that we have a man who has access to all of the scriptures And to all of the experts on the Jewish law who could rebuild the temple and have the potential to restore pious worship in Jerusalem, and yet he used his stewardship as a platform for self-promotion. And then we have non-Jewish astrologers who are just merely coming to pay homage to the king, and then they leave once again. Those who came in simplicity left with joy, while the paranoid tyrant was left with a deeper sense of threat. The Magi had created things that had potential for idolatry, and Jesus here turns them into a means of worship. But Herod, who had all the means of worship, turns them into tools of idolatry. So it's the simple faith of the Magi that reminds us that Jesus is king. That all that we have and that all that we produce is his. The Magi are not beyond the reach of the light of God, and they're willing to travel at cost of themselves to be undone and to offer what they have before their king. The season of Epiphany reminds us that no one is beyond the reach of God's loving grace and that we are most whole when we offer all of who we are and what we can produce to Jesus, our king. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you are light from light true God from true God. Would you continue to illumine our hearts with your natal star and guide us to the place where we offer to you the purest of offerings with hearts that are filled with joy and gratitude as we bow before you, our King. And with Thomas the Kempis, we pray that you, our God, in whom we trust, would strengthen us not to regard overmuch who is for us or who is against us, but to see to it that we be with you in everything we do. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.